Today's passage is Acts 17, 16 through 34. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And then they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, that the, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by being raised from the dead." And now and when now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead some mocked but others said we will hear you again about this so Paul went out from their midst some men joined him and believed among whom were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them this is the word of the Lord you may be seated No? No? Oh, wait. I got a little bit. All right. We'll take it. Awesome. Well, welcome this morning. My name is Vincent. I'm one of the elders here and certainly pumped to be here. And uh, as Sean said, this is my first time preaching ever, which is cool. Well, not counting the first service, but I'm super pumped to be here. And uh, the only way I can equate it is uh, I've been fortunate enough to have know some people in my life that um, uh, have been called to the show. You guys know what that is? In baseball vernacular, there's minor leagues and the big leagues. The big leagues are major league level. So after people work their a ton of years in the minors, working their way up, they get called to the show. So I've been in small groups. I've been, I've been teaching uh, men's groups. I've spoken to classes. I mean, I've been working my way through it. 
and now I get called up to the show. So uh, this, this has to be what that is like. So I'm pumped. I'm pumped to be here. Uh, I'm humbled to be here and to be uh, speaking uh, to you guys today. So uh, thank you for uh, being here this morning. So we do have a lot of text to get through, 34 verses. The part that Molly read is actually the second half of what we're going to be going through as Paul enters into Athens. So I'm going to give you some context. And again, we're going to fly through it because it's a lot. Um, some context for how Paul enters into Athens and how he gets there. So um, let's get to it. Let me pray, and uh, we'll, we'll start at it. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for um, who you are and how you love us and how you've given us um, all perfectly wrapped up the, the text that we have this morning, the word, the Bible. We worship you freely, and we're grateful to be here in this place. As we know, there are several around the world who aren't able to do this this morning. So God, we just pray that you open our hearts in our minds to receive the word and the message that you want us to receive. Um, We're grateful for how you love us, and thank you for all you do. In Jesus' name, amen. So, if you guys remember last week, or if you haven't been here at all, we've been going through Acts the last several months, starting in January. And if you're not familiar with redemption or how we do stuff, we just go through books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, uh, as opposed to topical studies. We just go through the text and whatever topic happens to come up in the text is what we deal with. So uh, this is no different. We've been leading up to this moment today. Last week, John Demeter, another elder here, was preaching through um, chapter 16, which is where we first see Paul and the gospel start entering into Europe. And if you remember, John referenced uh, Acts 1.8 as kind of our foundation of what's happening in all of Acts. We go back to um, uh, what Luke is telling us in, in chapter 1, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So what you're seeing is this happening, right? If we have a, a map. You can see where Paul, starting all the way down here in Jerusalem, working his way up. And as Jim uh, Ellis mentioned several weeks ago, this is a span over several years. But way up top there, you see Philippi. That is the most recent city that Paul was in, where John took us through last week. And uh, he got kicked out of Philippi, as was custom. He's getting kicked out of all these cities, leaving against his will, even stoned, where they thought he was dead, but he was able to get back up and keep uh, preaching the gospel in other cities. So we see uh, uh, Paul in prison. Jailer was saved. They thought he left. Jailer's about to kill himself. Paul said, no, save the, the jailer. And then they asked him to leave against his will again. So he left, um, not in physical violence, but he is leaving Philippi on his way to Thessalonica, and that's where we find ourselves in the text this morning. So let's dive right in. Verse, or chapter 17, verse 1. Let's go here. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So we see that over several weeks, it says three Sabbaths, that's a Saturday. So don't know if it was consecutive weeks or how long exactly he was there, but he's in the synagogues because those Jews that were in there believe in the same God that Paul does. So every city he goes to, goes into the synagogue and starts preaching the gospel. He's reasoning with them. You see the text talk about he's explaining to them. He's proving to them. He's logically, methodically, very lovingly and gently walking him through or walking uh, the the community through uh, the gospel as opposed to hammering them, telling them they're not smart. This is what you need to believe. Hellfire and brimstone doesn't do any of that. He's gently walking them through 
the text. But all these things that he's taking them through, this is all crazy stuff. Everything that they know in, from the prophets and in the scriptures, this Messiah that they're expecting to come, Paul is introducing them to, that's Jesus. So this is crazy, all foreign, and uh, we see how people start responding. Verse 4, and some of them were persuaded and, Paul, and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So immediately we see some of them were down with what um, Paul was preaching. But many of them, most of them, were not happy. They were jealous, and specifically, <clears throat> excuse me, specifically the, word, the Greek word for jealous is zelu, which literally means full of anger and hatred mainly because of what they were doing, what they were doing to the community. There were some of the, their own fellow Jews were believing some of the stuff that Paul was, was putting out there, which was crazy, and it ticked them off. So they went to the, the rabble, the marketplace, and, and got some thugs, got some wicked men to come do their dirty work and get a hole in Paul and Silas to shut them down. And they knew that Jason was a believer and associated with Paul and Silas, so they went to his house. So verse 6. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting uh, against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another Jesus. So immediately look what the gospel is doing. As we've seen the last several weeks, the gospel is disrupting. These, These men are saying they're changing the world, turning the world upside down. You'll see that as a common uh element of the gospel as it moves. It disrupts. And now we're seeing they're engaging not only the, the other fellow uh, Jews and non-believing Jews in their church, but they're going to the city authorities because they need some more power to address and to stop what Paul and Silas are doing. And the biggest problem that they see that they go to the city authorities with is that Paul and Silas are equating Jesus with Caesar. So picking up in verse 8, and the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and they rest, they let them go. So they had Jason and everybody arrested and holding them, trying to get them to stop. But then they get some money and they let them go. So basically bail or, or bond they put up and, and Jason um, and, his, and his, uh, his friends were released. Then they go back, picking up in verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. So just like in verse 2, as soon as he enters the city, he goes into the synagogue. Verse 11, now the Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Now, why is Luke saying that these guys were more noble? Well, keep going in verse 11. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few of the Greek women of high standing as well as the men. So this is a stark contrast to what's happening in Thessalonica in verse 4, where only some of the Jews believed. And here in verse 12, uh, Luke says many of them believed. But I don't believe he's saying that they were more noble because more people believe. It's like, oh, I feel good. These guys are, are, are better than those because they believe. But no, look at their behavior when they hear the gospel. They receive the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. That is a normal, noble act. And I think Luke is laying out, as believers, we should be doing these things also. We're going to hear the gospel. You might hear things, promises made, uh, referencing the Bible. But do you go back and examine with all eagerness? to see if these things were so. 
Verse 13, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was being proclaimed by Paul at Berea, also they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowd. So these guys were so ticked off at Paul, they literally went to another city to get them to stop. Okay, this isn't their community. They're in their community. They addressed it. They went to try to get him out of there. He left, but then they find out that Paul is doing this in another city. Remember, the gospel disrupts everywhere that it goes. And Berea is about 50 miles, 70 miles away from Thessalonica. So this is a few days journey that these guys are going over to get Paul and Silas to stop doing what they're doing. Excuse me. Uh, So let's keep going. Uh, Verse 14. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible... They departed. So they get to Athens. Paul's by himself, says, hey, go get my buddies, Silas and Timothy. Uh, bring them down here to me. However, I don't believe this is where Paul meant to end up. Paul's been traveling around city to city, getting persecuted everywhere he's going. He gets to um, uh, Berea, and he has to leave again. At some point, i got to believe he's like uncle. Get me somewhere. I need to be safe. Let's let me regroup. Let me gather my thoughts, and, and we'll hit this again when when uh, Silas and Timothy get to me. I mean, look, let's pull up that map again. If you look at where he's been traveling, save for the first few, but you see him going Antioch, Tarsus, all, Derby, all these cities he gets to uh, trust, and then up to Neapolis, Philippi, and you st- see the, all these little jumps, and then he gets kicked out of Berea, and he goes 220 miles away, much farther than what he had been doing. It just seems to me that he just wanted to get to a safe place to gather his thoughts, I don't know what's going on, God. I don't know what's been happening, but I almost died in one of these cities. And everywhere I go, this gospel thing is ticking people off. I'm down, but this is crazy. The cool thing about uh, the epistles, when, when Paul, the epistles, the, the letters that Paul writes in the New Testament, is that we have some other accounts from a different perspective, from Paul's perspective, on some of these things that are happening in Acts. So as Luke describes here um, in verse 10, when he leaves Thessalonica to Berea, he talks about the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away. And they had to do it by night, certainly against his will. But it wasn't under the massive persecution that he had been, or physical persecution he had been experiencing. But look, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17, Paul gives us his account or his description of him leaving Thessalonica um, just a little bit ago. So verse, or chapter 2, verse 17 says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Now, this phrase, torn away, that Paul uses here in, in uh, Thessalonians is a word, uh, aporphanizo. It's a tough one. Sorry, I'm not Greek. I'm probably saying it wrong. But aporphanizo. You can see this word, in what the root of this word is. I mean, look right in the middle. You see the word orphan, which literally means to bereave of parents or to take parents away. So Paul is equating getting kicked out of Thessalonica with orphaning his kids. This, this, this is a big deal. Paul is not okay with leaving all these cities. He is viewing himself as parent to a kid as the Thessalonian, or Thessalonian people are his children. He loves them. He knows they desperately need the gospel. He wants them to hear it, and he's being ripped away from them, equating that with orphaning a kid. Some of you have been called into adoption, foster care, community, um, and you've been face-to-face with some of these orphans, even the thought of a kid being orphaned is massively um, 
difficult emotionally for you to deal with. And God's called you into that, and, and, uh, and, that, and that's great. But the emotional distress that Paul is dealing with is equating leaving his kids as if, like, think of you if you have a job or you travel, you're in the military, and you're faced with leaving your family or your loved ones for a long period of time. It's gut-wrenching. It's tough. But you know you're coming back. Maybe you, 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 you have a job that just requires you to be gone consistently for a period of time, but you know when you're coming back. Now think about that feeling that you have when you leave, being against your will, being torn away from the people that you love, and not knowing when you're coming back. This is crushing Paul. There's no way I can believe that this is what he had planned. He never intended on leaving any of these cities when he did, and certainly equating it with orphaning kids is not something that um, I got to believe he signed up for. But God had a plan. Paul is emotionally and physically just drained and damaged, but God had a plan. Look at what God says in uh, Acts uh, chapter 9. So this is when Saul, before he becomes Paul, in his conversion, God asked a man, Ananias, to care for Paul or Saul, um, at the time, and Ananias was like, no, I don't, I don't think so. Have you, do you know who this guy Saul is? Like, he's killing us, and God, do you want me to care for him? But look what God says in uh, verse 15 and 16. But the Lord said to him, to Ananias, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel, for I will show him how much he will suffer for the sake of my name. Now, God knew what he was doing with all the suffering that Paul is enduring, but uh, Paul didn't hear God say that, and I don't know if he would have signed up for it if he knew what was coming. Because all of his experiences, he sums up with the distress and the challenge that he's having um, with continuing to do what God's called him to do. It's not the easiest thing for him. Let's look what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. Indeed, we felt like we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. There's a phrase or a cliche you may have heard that you can only see God by looking backwards. Meaning when you're in a tough circumstance, you're in a tough spot, and you don't know what's going on, you don't know where God is in this, you don't hear his voice. Well, at some point when you're in a better place, you can look backwards and say, oh yeah, that's what God was doing when my life was really, really rough. And I know for a fact, there are several of you in here that are going through some pretty tough stuff. And the challenge with looking backwards to see God is, what do you do when you're in it? That's great for the future, but what do I do when I'm in the middle of this, this disaster, this pain, this challenge, this unusual circumstance that I find myself in? Especially if you think that you're being called by God and you're walking with God, you're seeking him first, but life is not going the way that you planned. What do you do with that? Um, my wife and I, Diana, we've been, um, God called us into kind of the, the adoption foster community um, several years ago, and we went down that road, and he's blessed us with two little boys that um, have come into our, our life, which is a source of a ton of joy and happiness. Um, but when Paul talks about, in 2 Corinthians, being, feeling like he's been given the sentence of death, I'm, I'm ashamed to tell you that we absolutely feel that way at times. And what do you do with that? Because we are certain that God asked us to do this. But this is definitely not going the way that we planned. So how do you find comfort in the midst of this pain and this challenge and this circumstance that you're in to know that God has a plan for you? To know that this is what God intended for you. 
I was having breakfast with uh, Josh Prather not too long ago. Josh has spoken here before. He's a pastor with Redemption that came here, and we were sharing some stories. And he says, you know, the stuff that we're going through, it's not only intended by God, but it's better for you. Better for me? What, what do you mean better for me? This is better for you. God's plan is better than yours. I know it's painful now, and I know you don't see what's coming, but it's better for you. John Piper would put it this way, is that God is protecting you by having you go through this pain. Because if he didn't, we would have a sense that when everything is going great, that we had something to do with why things are going great. But for Paul, Paul's not, this ain't going great for Paul. He was almost killed. And I got to believe he doesn't have the luxury of looking back going, oh yeah, that makes sense, that makes sense. He's in the thick of it, and he is still moving forward, pressing ahead with the goal of preaching the gospel in all these cities. Excuse me, Tyler Johnson was here a few uh, months ago, and he was talking about if you're in the thick of something, you're having trouble hearing God, you haven't heard his voice, how do I hear God's voice? How does God speak to me? The difference between you and hearing God's voice is the distance between you and your Bible. I mean, you've got to get in the Word. I know that sounds cliche, and you've probably been told a thousand times, get into the Word. His promises are true, and when you're in the thick of it, you have to press back into Jesus and see what he has for you. I'll prove it to you. Let's go. Let's, ha- let's go through all these verses. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Proverbs 3, 6. Now, Proverbs 3, 6, if you remember a few weeks ago, we were in Acts 13, 10, where a guy named Bar-Jesus was being confronted by Paul for making God's paths crooked. Proverbs 3, 6. In all your ways, acknowledging him, he will make your straight he will make straight your paths. Proverbs 16.9, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is his purpose of the Lord that will stand. Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. James 1.2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. I know what you're thinking coffee mug, bumper sticker. You've seen all these things everywhere, right? And probably when you've seen them on a bumper sticker, I know that, I know that. But when you're being tested and you're in an unusual circumstance, an extremely painful circumstance, are you diving back into those promises? Because you need to. And I know Paul knew the scriptures when he finds himself in a situation where he feels like he's been sentenced to death. God had a plan for him, just like he has a plan for you. Because what's coming in Athens is mind-blowing. And there's no way Paul could have known that was going to happen. Remember, Paul's there by himself, not doing anything, waiting for his friends to come. But let's pick up in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned with them in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So Paul's just chilling in Athens, waiting for his friends to come. He's interacting with the community and the society. And finally, he gets to a point he can't take it anymore. He's got to engage. Now, think about what he's been through in every city being persecuted. There's nobody with him. And he says, I, I, that's enough. I got it. I'm just going to go to the synagogue by myself and start cranking this out. And again, we see he's reasoning with them. He's explaining the gospel to them. Verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now, 
the Epicureans that he references. Epicureans are these philosophers that are all about pleasure. If it feels good, do it. Whatever you want, you're in control. Do what you, what, what you want to do. The Stoics were more about discipline of self, meaning, hey, this is the life you've been given. There's nothing you can do about it. Figure it out. But both of them, neither of them, believed in the afterlife. So Paul's coming with this resurrection stuff, Jesus, and they're saying, what is this guy saying? Um, this, this is pretty nuts, but something's going on with some, a foreign divinity because he's referencing the resurrection. But look how they respond, verse 19. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And that's kind of how their culture was. Whatever they hear, oh, that's kind of cool. Did you hear about that? Well, I heard this from this person. Let's talk about it. I know more than you. That's why they're looking at some of these things. But the gospel is disrupting their life, similar the way that it has in every other city that they've been to. You guys, there was a, a, a movie... Uh, gosh, I don't know how long ago. The Book of Eli, if you guys remember this movie. It's pretty intense, but if you've seen it, um, it's this time of anarchy and chaos, and, and everyone's looking for the Book of Eli, and the book was the Bible. And I'm paraphrasing, but they reference, like, why is everyone after this book? And what the movie communicated and verbalized was that never has there ever been a book that has impacted and disrupted people's lives in a way that this book has. And there's only one person that had it, was this guy, this character, Eli, and everyone was after him to get it because of the power that was inside of it. So everyone is, is, is reacting to what Paul is saying, all this new stuff, like, hey, they're not reacting negatively the way that he's experienced in other cities, but they're saying, what is this that we're hearing? We, we want to know more. So they brought him to the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus is a place in Athens. Uh, it's up on a hill, and it's basically the place where their Supreme Court, if you will, um, uh, existed. They would hear cases of, of murder and capital punishment. They would hear uh, arguments on moral issues, um, whatever philosophies uh, have come up uh, during the day. Well, anything that's impacting their community is what happens uh, at the Areopagus. And the Areopagus uh, is named after Ares, the god of war, which, long story through the years, the god of the Roman god of war is Mars, and this place was specifically referenced as Mars Hill. And some of you may have even heard of churches that have been named after this because this is such a powerful, intense, crazy thing that's happening in this location that it can't be ignored. So they invite him to Mars Hill, and Paul's like, let's do it. So this is a huge deal, and we pick up in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that you are very religious. Now, Paul's making it sound like a compliment, but if you're a believer, um, if someone calls you really religious, you're not taking it as a compliment. But Paul is engaging, intentionally, specifically engaging the culture based on what he sees. And remember, in Athens, massive architecture, beautiful statues and idols everywhere. And he says, hey, I, I see that you guys are, are pretty religious. So this is good. He could say, hey, I see you guys are a bunch of idiots. That would definitely not go over well. But you see this constant push for him to engage in the culture. Verse 23, For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he gives himself to all mankind, life and breath and everything. 
crazy. Verse 26. And he made from, the, or from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. So Paul is in the midst of this city speaking to how many people with things they've never even heard of or processed. Now think about the God that they believe in, no afterlife. God is separate from them. Their deities that they believe in, that they worship, does not interact with them. They can never be on their level. They can never go to heaven or wherever they think the gods are. There's no uh, interaction or relationship between their gods and them. But Paul is saying, nope, this, this unknown God that you think you're disconnected from, no, he, he loves you. This Jesus that um, I'm telling you about, he wants to interact with you. Not only that, he has died for you. He was raised from the dead so you can spend eternity with him. This, this is nuts. But he continues, verse 28. In him we live and more, I'm sorry, we live and move and have our being, as even some of your poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. Paul is quoting their poets and their philosophers. They're not Christian philosophers. They're pagan philosophers. That he is intentionally engaging the culture with people, with the philosophers and poets that they know about, that they could relate to. Oh, that's right, yes. And Paul is saying, even uh, for their poets say, even in him we live and move in our being, for we indeed are his offspring. This is nuts. Paul is literally going through the first public uh, laid out apologetic of the gospel, quoting pagan philosophers. Why is he doing it? He's doing it to engage the culture. Have you ever tried to engage with a non-believer and specifically not used Bible references? Paul doesn't even reference the Bible or scripture when he's preaching the gospel to them. This is crazy. I used to pride myself. Side note, I used to pride myself on making sure I didn't know what was going on in pulp culture. I used to be, oh, what, what movie is that? Oh, I don't know. New music, pop culture, oh, I don't know. I don't know that. I'm such an awesome Christian, I don't even know what the culture is doing. Right? I, I, this is, I'm ashamed to say this, but I literally have stopped people, non-believers, um, mid-sentence if they used a cuss word and said, don't, don't cuss in my presence. I have done that. It is horrendous. And if you think for a moment what I was doing in the name of what I thought was good, being a good Christian was advancing the gospel, there's no chance. No chance at all. Paul is doing the opposite of what I was doing um, back in the day, for sure. But we know Paul, he isn't necessarily approving what um, is going on in the culture, because that's a tendency too, right? If you engage in the culture too much, people might think you approve of what's going on. But there's a way to interact with the culture that suggests otherwise. And that's what Paul is doing. Because look at Romans 1.22 um, and 23. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. So we know how Paul feels about idols. So even though he enters into Athens and says, hey, I see that you guys are pretty religious. There's no part of Paul that thinks that that is okay, even though it was engaging to them. The difference, Paul is in Romans speaking to Christians. Paul in Athens is speaking to non-believers. It's a different tactic and strategy. The tone is different, intentionally different, to pull people in to Jesus. I got a call from a friend of ours earlier this week that um, 
all excited, said that they are running for political office. I'm like, oh, great. Um, the political office they're running for is the polar opposite of everything I believe in, politically. Um, and they know that, which has been great, because we've had a relationship through the years, and we've always been able to have civil conversations, not just civil conversations, but we have a great relationship. They acknowledge where we're at, we acknowledge where they're at, it's awesome. So they were super pumped to tell us that they're running for office. I'm like, great. Oh, man, it'd be awesome if you can engage, and um, you know, we can get your support. We'd love for you to come to these functions. I'm like, okay. Um, we're even going to have a fundraiser next week or whatever. So am I going to go to a fundraiser of a excuse me, a political party, if you will, for a candidate of the complete opposite of everything that I believe in, um, certainly politically. Um, Yes, absolutely. It will absolutely be there. They're not believers. Do you think it'd be better if I didn't go? Because, oh, you don't believe our Christians don't do that. That's insane. And so when I look at the example of Paul, I look at that opportunity to go be Jesus in the midst of their community that is completely different from everything that I believe in. But we have a relationship. Paul's getting credibility with them. In order to speak the gospel into their lives, he needed to um, get their attention and relate to them. And he even tells us a little bit of his strategy in 1 Corinthians 9, 22. To those outside the law became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. You engaging with the culture is not you condoning what's happening if you were there for Jesus. But now that he has their attention, um, we get into verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So he's using the words of their poets against him, saying, look, your gods are saying we are God's offspring. Well, guess what? If we are God's offspring, we ain't a statue. We're not gold. We are humans because we're made in his image, which doesn't make any sense to them, but he's proving to them with their own words what they're saying. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. That man is Jesus. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. (laughs) Minds are blown. He's sitting in Athens in the most prominent, important part of their city and their culture, preaching the gospel to them, telling them things like, the God, this God loves you so much, and he has even determined the boundaries of your dwelling places. He doesn't live in uh, temples made by men, and he is desperately wanting to interact with you. It's like Paul is saying, look, guys, everything that you're looking for is right in front of you. And he's telling that to us today as well. Because if you think for one second, these idols, these statues, these, these big gold uh, majestic pieces of art that they're worshiping, just because that's not in your life doesn't mean that Paul wouldn't witness what's happening in our world today and react the same way. We absolutely have our idols that I know Paul would react the same way. His spirit would be provoked when he sees how we go after money, how we go after our job, how we go after that boyfriend or girlfriend, how we go after the coolest car or the promotion. We have our idols in our life. And everything that we're looking for in those idols are right in front of us in Jesus. You don't need those idols. And he's telling the people of Athens, you don't need 
any more uh, than Jesus. Now, verse 32, when they had heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. Now, remember, Paul's getting kicked out of every place he's ever uh, preached the gospel. But not now. And I just envisioned Paul literally mic dropping and walking off the stage. <laughs> Seriously. Like, like he, there's no one pushing up against him. There's no one kicking him out. There's no one stoning him. And he just rocked their world with things they've never heard of. Mic drop. And he just, he leaves, went out from their midst. It's so cool. Verse 34. But some men joined him and believed. Among them also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So remember Acts 1.8? The gospel spreading to the ends of the earth. It's happening. You're seeing it happening. And not just geographically, but demographically. We've seen several different types of people come to Christ, be included in the gospel, from uh, uh, crossing over races, from, from Jew to Gentile, socioeconomic classes, poor to rich, women to men. This, this Dionysius, the Areopagite, is a member of the council that he was just preaching to. He decided to go with Paul. You're seeing it spreading. The gospel knows no boundaries. And if you're sitting here thinking to yourself, the gospel is not for me, there's no way... God, Jesus, could include me in what he has. That's not true. There's nothing that is in your past that disqualifies you. Whatever sin that you have, God's grace is deeper. And he desperately wants to know you. So Paul's message is being received in a way that um, we see it happening in various parts of the Bible, as well as in our own world. I mean, look what's happened. Some people believe and join him. Some people mock and reject it. And some people want to look more at it. I guarantee you there are people in this room that fall into one of those categories. Because the gospel, there's no way to hear the gospel and have a neutral response to it. The gospel requires a response. So with whatever you're dealing, you might be dealing with, don't resist it. Don't resist it. If you're a non-believer wondering, I don't know about this stuff, you're going to have a response to it. And we would love to walk you through some of those responses. And if you're a believer, the example that Paul is setting here in Athens, how he's preaching the gospel, engaging in the culture in a way that draws them in and not pushes them away, that's an example for all of us. Daryl Bach, a theologian, has written some commentaries on, on Acts, and he says, despite being aggregated by all, I'm sorry, aggravated by all the idolatry he sees around him in Athens, Paul manages to share the gospel with a generous but honest spirit. The Paul of Romans 1, who speaks of the sad state of society, is still able to love and connect with that society in Acts 17. This also is an important lesson. Sometimes we as Christians are so angry at the state of our society that all that comes through is the anger and not the love that we are to have for our neighbor in need. Those who see this anger and want to represent the faith differently can overreact the other way, almost pretending as if there is no idolatry as long as the religious search is sincerely motivated. Paul avoids both of these extremes. He knows how to confront, but does so honestly and graciously. Both message and tone are important in sharing the gospel. Here, Paul is an example of both. I know some of you pretty frustrated with the culture around you, as was I. And I intentionally separated myself from that culture, distancing, having anything to do with what was happening as if that was a good thing. Paul's example is the opposite. 
Are you willing to engage in culture and stand by your convictions and preach the gospel in a way that is loving and draws people to Jesus? So, chapter 17, a quick summary of what's been happening with the gospel. We see in uh, verses 1 through 9, the gospel is disrupting. And I guarantee the gospel will disrupt your life. If you're a believer and the gospel hasn't disrupted your life, might need to examine it some more. But if you're wondering, if you're a non, not a believer in here, wondering what this is going to do, it's going to disrupt your life. Verses 10 through 15, the gospel is worth examining. Verses 16 through 31, the gospel is explained. In verses 32 through 34, the gospel elicits a response. The gospel absolutely requires a response. So if you're sitting here today wondering where you fit, we would love to talk to you about it. We would love to walk through some things with you to answer some questions that you might have. Don't resist it. And if you're a believer in here, we have a responsibility. When Jesus says, love our neighbors, that's for real. And we have to do it in a way that interacts with the culture, not distances ourselves or isolates ourselves or only puts ourselves in communities of Christians. We have to interact with the culture. Finishing up here lastly in Hebrews 3, verse 15. It says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. If you're in this room wondering, are you feeling God's presence? Are you hearing his voice? You're not sure. Don't hear it and harden your hearts. That's our prayer for you. We'd love to walk through some of that with you and talk through it with you. I'll be here. I'll be on the side. Sean is going to be here. Any of the RC leaders, Josh, we'd love to walk through these things with you. Don't resist what God is doing in your life. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for um, just loving us the way that you do. We are so just overwhelmed by how much you love us, acknowledging that there's nothing in our life that we have ever done to uh, disqualify us from being loved by you, and there's certainly nothing in our life that we've ever done to suggest that we deserve how you love us. We thank you for pursuing us. Despite our best efforts to screw up our lives, we know that you are there with us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. And we just pray for those in this room who are trying to figure some things out as you're interacting with them. They may not know what that is, God, and I just pray that they get out of their comfort zone to explore that, to examine the gospel and examine the word. God, we love you, we praise you, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.